Hello, internet and anyone listening. I'm Angelique, and this is episode 12 of Read Your Heart Out. And yes, I am back. I was on a bit of a hiatus there for a while. Um, For anyone who does anything even remotely artistic, you will know that inspiration strikes when she will. And truthfully, for the past, yeah, wow, almost a month, I haven't really had any inspiration. I haven't really known what to talk about or mention or like if I should do a genre or just do books. And it's been a little bit difficult because I don't want to just like put out random content. That's just really not my style. And so I was waiting to see what would come and give me some inspiration. And even now, truthfully, I feel like I'm not fully back yet, but I missed you guys. And I missed talking about books. And I was feeling really like a little bit jaded almost because I, in the past month that I've been gone, I've been reading, I've been rereading Outlander and then intercutting it with other books. And I just went on like a little modern book spree over the past month. And I got a little bit depressed about it because I just don't really get it. Like I'm not a modern reader and I just don't want to sh- I don't want to shit on books and I don't want to shit on reading or sound pretentious or whatever because like it's hard enough just to get people to read in the first place but it was just a little bit confusing for me cuz I'm like it, these books aren't like they don't need to be challenging but they're not even like challenging your brain in any way shape or form like they're not making you really think or making you even like put in in a little bit of effort into the reading aspect of it it just feels like it's all presented and it's just like churning out content I feel like I'm reading the same things over and over again, just with like, dip, like, I don't even really know how to explain it. And I feel like I sound like a total asshole right now because I'm like, modern books are boring. But like, it's not even that they're boring. They're just like, not filled out. That's what I've, that's what I've kind of come to is that they feel like full of hot air, almost that it's just like, the outlines and the edges of them look really interesting. And the ideas of the stories and the ideas of the characters are really cool. But like, the substance isn't there to justify what they're giving so I kind of felt like if these are the really popular books right now is anyone even caring what I have to say because all I want to talk about are old books and so that was uh, another reason why it took me a while to kind of get back into this groove but I'm here and I want to talk about no surprise an old book because reading all these new books made me definitely realize how much I love the old books and how much classics have shaped me as a reader Um, and I know that you guys probably won't read this book and you probably won't go out and read classics. And that is totally okay. They are really not for everybody, but I feel like I just need to be some kind of voice out there to be like, ah, this book is really good. And it way have been written a hundred years ago, but it is really, really worth the read. And it's like fundamental to all the books we read now. So I feel like I need to just keep putting this quiet voice of oldies out there because that's who I am. I'm in, as this cliche, I'm an old soul and I always have been. And my reading um, life has only proved that to me more. So to come back from this break, to shake me out of my writing slump and not even a reading slump, but it's just like, I just kind of got a little depressed reading these books because I'm like, we deserve better than this. And so I was getting a little upset just like knowing that this is the, the you know, the new norm of reading. And so I'm here to talk about an old book that I read this year that I have not been able to let go of. And it is by a author who is like a fundamental one in the world of literature. So today, instead of it being like a podcast all about the negatives of modern books, which I had a 
I almost did. I almost just decided to go on a spiel, everyone, because I was so angry. But I said that that's not what this world needs. We don't need negativity. And I don't want to stop people from reading. So I'm going to try to turn the tides and make it a positive thing and just talk about a book I really, really love. Just one book. So today is all about the 1886 novel by Thomas Hardy, and it is called The Mayor of Casterbridge. So buckle up. It is a full spoilers. I'm going through the whole plot, and I just am doing this to talk about how these books have the twist, turns, and substance that we should demand of reading now and what to kind of look for. What are these big things that you should look for in terms of what is a good book and what is good literature um, in today's reading? So we are going to get into the mayor of Casterbridge. All right, y'all. Our story starts off following a young family consisting of a husband, wife, and a baby daughter who are traveling in search of work and stability. The main breadwinner of this unit is a 21-year-old hay trusser named Michael Henchard, along with his wife, Susan, and their daughter, Elizabeth Jane. Coming up on a rural inn and tavern, our family decides to camp for the night to attempt to acquire food, shelter, and a possible job for Michael. Um, but while they are at the tavern, however, Michael overindulges heavily in liquor and spirits until his temper is raging, his vision is blurred with drink, and in a fit of extreme peak, Michael auctions off his wife and newborn daughter to a passing sailor named Richard Newson for the price of five measly guineas. Yes, you heard that right. This drunk man said, fuck it. I'm going to auction off my wife and children. So he loses them. They go off with this sailor because um, Susan thought that it was like a legally binding thing. So she's like, all right, well, I guess I'm with this guy now. So the next day, with a sobered mind and a clear understanding of the previous night's consequences, Michael immediately regrets his rash actions, and after failing to find his lost family, he vows to never touch alcohol again for 21 years, which is as long as he lived. Um, so here, that is the setup of our book. We have this man who, by all intents and purposes, does one of the worst things that anyone could ever do, just selling off their family for five guineas, which is not a lot at all. And so we see a time jump now. We are jumping ahead 18 years. And during this 18 years, Michael, who's our main guy, has managed to become a respected hay and grain merchant and eventually becomes the beloved mayor of a small town named Casterbridge. The town reveres him for his respectability and his staunch sobriety that have led him into a place of prominence and import. And while deep in the eddies of his new life, Michael is given the surprise of a lifetime when his long lost wife, Susan, seeks him out accompanied by a now fully grown Elizabeth Jane. Because again, she thought the auction was like a legally binding thing. So Susan has spent the last 18 years traveling the globe with her seafaring buyer and eventually lover and companion, um, Richard. And when Richard Newson, the sailor, is lost at sea, Susan decides it's time to search for her first husband and finds him in a place of elevated status in the town of Casterbridge. Being confronted with the sudden reappearance of his wife, Michael decides to finally do right by her and arranges a quick ceremony to remarry Susan and to keep Elizabeth Jane from learning the truth of her parents' past. So Elizabeth Jane does not know that Michael is her actual father because her mom is like, we just have family or we know people in this town or whatever. And they go to Casterbridge and she finds him and Michael and Susan decide, let's not let Elizabeth Jane know that we're 
what happens because it's really bad and she'll never be able to look at me the same. And so Elizabeth Jane just thinks that her mother got married to this guy. So that's where we are. Um, Michael, in the midst of this process, has one more matter of importance to settle without Susan's knowledge, and that is the breaking of ties between him and his hidden mistress, Miss Lucetta, Lucetta, I think it's Lucetta, Templeman, it's definitely not, it's definitely not Lucetta, but whatever, Lucetta, Luce, let's call her Lucy. Lucy, she was a poor girl from a neighboring town who helped nurse Michael back to health years ago when he caught a nasty sickness. He was in this other town. He got sick. She brought him back to health. And thanks to her compassionate tending, as well as some passion of her own, they fall in love. These two fall in love and they start a torrid affair that left Lucy being disgraced and ruined in the eyes of those living in her village because they weren't married and that's a big no-no. But Michael obviously doesn't give a shit. He returns to Casterbridge and just like writes to Lucy with empty promises of marriage and a life lived happily ever after and blah, 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 blah. He's pretty much just like keeping her, stringing her along. That is until Susan returns to his doorstep and completely shifts that fragile framework of his life. And so he's like, okay, I can't have this mistress because I have a wife and my daughter. So in the midst of all his female connections and entanglements, Michael also forges a bond with a Scotsman who is just passing through Casterbridge by the name of Donald Farfrae. Who, Donald Farfrae. I love Donald Farfrae. Okay. Farfrae shows Michael a method of preserving greens and fixing those that have been spoiled because this was a big issue for Michael's business. And so by doing this, it, he completely enchants Michael and Michael offers him a job immediately, a job he was already going to give to somebody else. And then he meets Donald. And he's like, now this guy will take it. So Donald takes this job from plenty of persuasion. He accepts and he eventually does such a good job that he begins to outshine Michael in the eyes of the town citizens. The final straw of Donald uh, working for Michael is when Michael's daughter, Elizabeth Jane, sees him and she's like, Ooh, I like. And Donald's like, I like back. And Michael, who's extremely jealous and extremely angry because he's kind of being overshadowed by this young Scots, which can we blame? We love a young Scot. Um, seeing that he might even lose his daughter, who he like at this point doesn't even really care that much about. But again, it's just like another thing that's his that Donald might potentially be taking. So he's like, absolutely not. He fires Donald from his job. And this leads the scrupulous Scotsman to start a rival company of his own because he's now learned how to do this. He already knows his only job. He decided to change his travel plans and end up at Casterbridge. And so with a reputation that is fresh and lacking any blemishes, Farfrae is able to become a quick success in the town and eventually kind of pushes Michael towards financial ruin as his business flounders in an effort to keep up with Farfrae. So... As if the money troubles weren't bad enough for Mr. Michael Henchard, Susan, his wife, who has returned, falls terribly ill not long after her hasty remarriage to Michael and dies soon after. She leaves pretty much no worldly possessions except a hastily sealed letter left for Michael to open on the day of Elizabeth Jane's wedding. But because of the poor attempt at sealing it with wax and because Michael's complete inability to contain his curiosity, the letter is opened and it is revealed that, oh my God, Elizabeth Jane is not actually Michael's daughter. The Elizabeth Jane that came with Susan 
is actually Richard Newson's real daughter. When they were sold as an infant, Elizabeth Jane and Susan, she died soon after the baby. And so she had a new baby with the sailor that bought her, and she decided to name her Elizabeth Jane in honor of the baby that she lost. But she never told Michael this. So when she came back, Michael thinks that this daughter is his. And so that was also part of the reason why he remarried Susan in the first place, because he's like, I have, we also have a child we have to take care of. So this means that the whole time Michael has been working to maintain a fragile lie about his past. Remember, Susan, uh, Elizabeth Jane did not know that that was her actual dad, which in reality wasn't her actual dad. Um, it's all been for nothing. Elizabeth Jane isn't his. His actual child was lost. And, and now she's just that sailor's child that he's been taking care of as if his own. Um this young woman currently in his care is just, you know, just some random person. And he's just recently been able to see her as a source of comfort for his crumbling life. But that is now no longer. He acts cold and distant towards Elizabeth Jane, feeling slighted and ultimately betrayed by the woman he himself had stabbed in the back all those years ago. So hearing the news of the death of Henchard's wife, his mistress Lucy, who was slighted as well, makes a surprise appearance in Casterbridge with a heart full of love for Michael as well as pockets full of cash and treasures given to her by her recently deceased and extremely wealthy aunt. Not wanting to deal with Lucy's games day in and day out, Michael sets up Elizabeth Jane to be a kind of like assistant of sorts because he thinks this is going to be ki like killing two birds with one stone where he can get rid of Elizabeth Jane and he can have someone deal with Lucy all day long and also give him a reason to be able to pop in and out whenever he wanted. So that is our current setup. And he thought that this would work as a way to kind of help him, you know, reestablish himself as that nice prominent mayor of Casterbridge. But this tenuous setup is all fine and dandy until our hunky Scotsman himself enters the picture once again and becomes immediately smitten with Lucy, like head over heels. He loves her. And of course, Michael's like, oh, wait a minute. Didn't really want her, but like, she's still his. You can't have this too. You've taken everything else from me. So Lucy seeing the win-win situation and gaining the favor of Farfrae encourages his affections and watches with satisfaction as Michael bubbles over in righteous jealousy. With a failing business, a daughter who isn't even really his daughter, and no foreseeable path out of his current predicament, Michael decides to finally give in to Lucy and um, wants to propose marriage, mostly if not entirely for financial reasons. Um... Lucy, now flush with cash and holding the affections of the town's most valued businessman, avoids the awkward refusal she would have to give Michael and flees to a neighboring town with Donald to get hitched in secret. So Michael's last ditch financial solution is now moot and his credit collapses and he is forced into bankruptcy. <laughs> With the positions fully flipped between them, Farfrae buys Michael's business and hires him as a journeyman in order to help uh, whatever way he really can. Because he kind of feels bad. He like low-key just ruined his whole life. But <laughs> And so the um, reigns the new norm of Casterbridge with Donald and Lucy Farfrae being the apples of the town's eye uh, while Michael seeds and holds tightly to all the evidence of uh, Lucy's love for him from their past, mostly in the form of a cache of letters she had written him. So 
he's kind of holding this almost like a blackmail chip. Like I'll expose that you loved me because you're not married to Donald. All this kind of stuff. He's getting real desperate at this point. Michael is because like his whole life literally started crumbling the minute that Susan showed up on his doorstep. Like when his past came to knock his, his current, his present just like literally destroyed. So that's where we're at. Michael, breaks down and says like, fine, I can't be this much of a piece of shit. So he returns the letters to Lucy, but um, he, because of his wounded ego, can't do it himself, obviously. So he gets this other guy to deliver the letters and the man that he chooses was a former employee of his. And he just so happens to be the employee that he was originally going to hire, but then says, no, I'm going to give this job to Donald Farfrae instead. So this guy like really holds a grudge and resentment against Michael. So Michael makes a, like a terrible decision in entrusting him with these letters because the guy holding all of Lucy's letters instead of delivering them to her is like, fuck you, Michael, I'm going to a pub. And he reads the letters out to everyone, to the whole town. He is reading out these love letters between Lucy and Michael. And as expected, the town publicly shames the two of them for carrying on a torrid affair while unmarried. And they even go so far as to create literal effigies of Lucy and Michael that they carry around the town and eventually set on fire as a presentation of how morally wrong and corrupt Lucy and Michael are. This is like a huge thing. And like having already experienced this Lucy who this happened to her at her last town, like Michael literally ruined her reputation in her last town, but he got to like leave and go to Casterbridge. So he never dealt with those consequences. And then she shows up here and now it's happening to her again. She cannot handle it. She can't handle the shame and the outcry and she just collapses. She has a miscarriage and she dies. Like, bah. like all 18th, 19th century women. She just says, fuck it and dies. So misery grips both Farfrae and Michael by the throat now as each have lost what they saw to be the ticket to their future but Michael's hardships are of course not over as Richard Newson remember him the sailor who we all thought was lost at sea surreptitiously returns from his watery grave in search of his long lost daughter not wanting to lose literally the only human connection he now has Michael tells Newson that Elizabeth Jane is dead. And after telling him that and seeing Newson leave dejected and empty handed, Michael decides, fuck it. I'm breaking my 21 year long abstinence from alcohol and I am getting trashed. So that old Michael Henshard we met in the beginning, he is back, baby. He's back. He's getting freaking hammered because his life is a shit show at this point. He has literally nothing and he feels like a piece of crap because he like, also took away the only thing that this guy Newson had as well to keep for himself, which is Elizabeth Jane, even though he doesn't even really want her either. So Michael's like an extremely complex, complicated person, not necessarily like a good way, but like a very human fucked up kind of way, which is why I find him so interesting. So as Newson leaves Casterbridge, um, he kind of has this like unshakable notion that he's been lied to. Like the Elizabeth Jane is probably alive somewhere. So he quickly turns back in order to search for her once again, and throughout this whole ordeal, while all this is happening, Farfrae and Elizabeth Jane have rekindled the spark that originally ignited between them, but was snuffed out by Michael like a while ago, and they soon become engaged. So Elizabeth Jane and um, 
and Farfrae are like finally living the life they should have lived from the beginning. But when Michael hears of Newson's return to Casterbridge, he flees the city because he doesn't want to like deal with having to like face Newson. So peace out to the town he spent the last two decades living in and some of the years of his running um, and only returns on the day of Elizabeth Jane's wedding to ask for forgiveness and reconciliation of any kind. He's pretty much a beggar. He's destitute. He is like a shell of his former self. And she rebuffs him, as honestly she should, because he's a POS. She rebuffs him and watches as he retreats back out of the town like the lost puppy dog that he has become. And being the pure girl that she is, Elizabeth Jane kind of feels sorry for him. And so her and Farfrae decide, okay, let's go find him. Like, he doesn't deserve that. No one really deserves that. Um, but they discover that they have arrived too late. Michael had died alone with nothing but a letter of his last words with him. And the letter, when they read it, um, expresses as his last will and testament to be forgotten. And that is how the book ends. And as kind of depressing as that sounds, the true winner of this story is Elizabeth Jane, as she should be, because she's like the only one that was really uses like a pure pawn with no real motivations of her own. She just kept getting pushed around. And she ended up, kind of as the as the ultimate champion of this story. And I love this book the way that I love this book because what a downfall for Michael Henchard. What a crazy karmic retribution type of story to come around and just like smack this guy upside the head. I mean, he commits like the ultimate act of betrayal and selfishness in the beginning of our book by selling off his wife and child. And then when we're reintroduced to him after that big time jump, you're kind of like, are these the same people? Like, these are supposed to be the same character. Michael is this respected mayor of Casterbridge. Everyone loves him. He's rich. He's kind of like the biggest businessman in town. And as the book goes on, it's literally as if like the world around him worked to peel away his layers of like faux kindness and responsibility and showed who he really was all this time on the inside. When push came to shove, he was a very jealous, selfish, me-oriented person. He didn't want Donald Farfrae to have anything that was remotely connected to him that was his. And so he worked hard to keep his things, but he always did it in the wrong way. And he ended up paying for it in every way possible at the end to end up just dying alone, which is how he kind of sent his wife and child to do. Like, what what was going to happen to them? They were just, the, he sent them off when he sold them. Like, they'll probably die alone too. And that's how he died, by himself. And for his last will to be forgotten is like, it's so sad because he, Loki deserves to be forgotten, but at the same time, no one deserves to be forgotten even when you are such a piece of shit like he is. Um, and I just love the complexity of that. I love that you can look and watch as this character tarnishes in front of you throughout the book. But then at the end, for him to almost get the full, like, what he deserves and still feel like, oh, like, does he really deserve that? That's a fucking awesome character. That's great writing because – he, by really all reasons, we should not like him. And you really don't like him, but you learn like 
through the book, the way that he just walked all over people and the way that like his goals and stuff was more important than everybody else, how that happened to him at the end, you, you realize like it just shouldn't happen to anyone. It's not about it should only happen to bad people. We just shouldn't be treating anybody like that at all. And Thomas Hardy, what I love about him personally, like as my style of writing, he made me feel so good about how descriptive he is. This man is throwing all the words out. He is getting his point across as clearly as he possibly can. This world is painted behind your eyelids. It is there. It is like you open the book and it's not reading pages. You're opening the book to the world of Casterbridge and Michael and Susan and Elizabeth Jane. It's just like one of the most beautifully described stories. And it's not necessarily a good feeling story, right? Because like Michael's a not great protagonist and he's really rides the line between antagonist and protagonist throughout this whole book. But Tom Hardy's descriptions, Thomas Hardy's descriptions, it's just like, I used to feel really bad about when I would write because I felt like I was just like really laying shit on thick. Like I kept feeling like I was using way too many words, too many descriptions, like people get it. They don't need this much. And then I read that and I'm like, no, we do. We need this much. And then after having my um, modern reading spiel, we do need it. We need the descriptions. There is this element of reading and writing where the author can present things and he'll know, and he or she will know at some point that we can all kind of get on the same page. You can make your the reader will make the leaps in logic that are necessary. The reader will pull from previous storytellings of any kind to kind of fill in gaps, and that's a really awesome tool to utilize if you can do it right. What modern books do is almost a hundred percent rely on this, rely on you being a consumer of media and of stories, and not really having to like fill in to explain why they're here. And what I mean by that is like, I read a romance book and it was like, these characters love each other, but it never really explained why they love each other. Like, it's just like their love didn't match the substance of the book. Like, you can't convince me that they love each other like this because I didn't see shit. And you can't just be like, well, they had all these months of talking. When literally a line in the book is like, and the months passed this way with us speaking and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Tell me about it. Tell me about the foundation of this relationship. Tell me why I should believe you that these people are head over heels in love with each other. That is not something I ever felt with Thomas Hardy. It was almost like when I got to the end of it, I felt like I lived this life. Like I felt like I lived this whole thing with Michael and that I was literally just a ghost behind him watching his life unfold. And that is literature and that is storytelling. And I know it's hard to be like, why can't we all write like Thomas Hardy, who's literally one of the best writers of all time. But it's not about writing like Thomas Hardy. It's about seeing how Thomas Hardy writes and saying, oh, maybe I need to add a little bit more flourish as well. Because he's getting a point across as clearly as any author I think I've ever read. And it just sucks. It just sucks to like read modern books and have people like barely put in effort and just be like, this is what happened. And then have like one description of it and then, and then want you to buy it. Like, no, I need all of, well, that's what I meant when I said it felt like things were full of hot air. Like, where is the actual substance of it? Thomas Hardy's whole thing is substance. And that's, why I like why I gravitated toward this book to talk about while I was going through my slump because as much as a story of this like it's not really that fun to read like it's not like not fun to read but it's like not a feel-good story is what I mean it feels human it feels real in a way that all these modern books don't like these 
these characters, Michael Henshard as a person to like auction off his wife and children is not a normal person. Like we would not see him normally in our world at really maybe ever, but, but Thomas Hardy made him feel normal. He made him feel like a real person who made real awful decisions and, and made real awful like ramifications throughout his life. And that is why this book stands out as a classic throughout time is because like these people feel grounded even when they do things that are not even remotely in the scope of reality for what humans do, they feel real and that's the writing and that's good writing. And that's what we should be looking for. Modern books have this tendency to portray characters that we want to be. And they're almost like too good to be true. Majority of the time, people are not like that. Like you can be an amazing person, but there's these, there's still going to be things about you. There's still going to be these like, you know, hitches in who you are, these like rough edges to who you are. And I just like, I hate a character that's perfect. I hate it. What that doesn't exist. It's just like, it isn't real. And and I don't even necessarily like characters that are terrible. Like Michael Hentert is not a good person, but he's an amazing character in a story because he's interesting and he's so fucking complex. Like the layers of Michael that continue to be stripped throughout this whole story are just like, I cannot get enough of them. There were so many moments throughout this book where I'm like, oh, it's just like all these puzzle pieces clicking together to to fully create the image of who Michael is feels so good. It feels good for me to put the puzzle pieces together as we read because it's like Thomas Hardy is painting the picture for you, but you get to put the pieces together and create the world. And that's just like what I love about reading so much. I didn't mean to get really angry about modern books, but like a book like this where like the ending is not fun. Forget about me. Michael's last words. I want to be forgotten. That's not that great of a feel good ending or anything like that. But holy shit, does that feel more human than really anything I've read written in the last three years? And and that's kind of why I have to I had to highlight this book. So that was the plot and the story of the mayor of Casterbridge. And obviously I did not get into everything because there's just like, it's a full book. I'm not going to get into everything. And I really recommend reading this book. But even if you don't, this is a perfect, perfect example of like the kind of literature we should be going for. You Or not even that, just like the signs you should be looking for. Stop reading books filled with hot air. You know that part about SpongeBob where <laughs> Karen Plankton's like computer wife scans Plankton and it's like 1% evil and 99% hot gas. That's literally what modern books are. It's like 1% literature, 99% hot gas. Like it's just, you deserve more. You deserve more as a story person taking in a story, as a reader, as just like a per, as a human. This is not, that's just like not as like the artistic integrity we should be more critical of. And it doesn't it doesn't need to be like, don't read any of these books because like I'm reading them. I read the modern books and just because I didn't like them doesn't mean I'm never going to read them again. I'm still going to read them because I need to be able to better see which ones are good and which ones are not. And that's the other thing. If we spend all our time in the world of modern, we don't really know what brought us there. We don't really get to see the the foundations that were laid by these like classic authors and I just feel like I'm shouting into a void talking about classics a lot of the times, but that's okay because like it's a void of me and I'm all right with it. Like I love classics and I'll just keep talking to myself about them. But if you do want to experience like 
the foundational stories of the world of reading and the world of literature, the easiest way to do it, like I go to Barnes and Noble and I get their classics collection. They have so many of them and they're like five bucks. And I know that it will probably be a little bit difficult to get into, but you are smarter than you think you are. And you're a better reader than you think you are just because it's not fully easy to get into within like the first 20 or whatever pages doesn't mean you need to give up, like keep going. And even if you don't get it, here I am. Hi, I might not fully get it either, but I can try and help to explain it because like I didn't really get a lot of the classics I was reading in the beginning either. And then like over time, it was almost like those things came back and finally clicked into place. And I was like, oh, that's what that is. And that's what that means. And that's that literature tool that some authors use. And I know maybe people just don't take reading as seriously as I do, but I do take it seriously. And I feel like we just deserve good books. Like, at the end of the day, you deserve a good story. Everyone deserves a good story. You shouldn't just have to read garbage. And not everything is garbage, but let's not pretend like there's not garbage out there, right? Okay, I'm going to end that spiel right there. <laughs> um, this was, a, a you know, my comeback to my podcast. Sorry, I clearly have a little bit of anger going on. I just like... <sighs> I want everyone to read good books. That's really me at the end of the day. And after reading some of those, I'm like, yeah, I need to like come back out here. And and even if no one's going to read the things I'm talking about, at least someone out there is like, there's also this. That's where I'm coming from. So if you want to see what I see, if you want to understand where I'm coming from a little bit more, then please feel free to hit me up with any kind of like if you have a rec or a recommendation or you want a book suggestion or any of those things. Or if you don't want to listen to me and you think I sound like a total pretentious asshole, I get it, man. It's hard to like take in art and critique art without a little bit sounding like that. And I'm not a toot my own horn type of person at all. But like, I do think I kind of know what I'm talking about when it comes to books. I have like 300 books in my collection. So I'm not, and they're not like all written from last 10 to 20 years. The oldest book I have is from like 1600. So like I'm trying people, I'm trying to be as well read as I possibly can. And when I come out and talk negative about things, it's not for no reason. Cause I really don't like to talk negatively about books at all, but sometimes it has to be done. And if I have to be the bad guy in the situation, then hello, antagonist to all modern readers here I am um I can't promise a normal schedule because like I said I'm only gonna create when inspiration comes to me because we deserve things that are from the heart not just for content pumping reasons and this isn't like my job so I'm just here to spread the love of books so I may be back next week I may not be back next week I will let you know and if you want to know when I'll be back or not you can always follow me on my Instagrams, on my social medias. My podcast Instagram is read, read, read your heart out. It's three reads. And then my personal Instagram is Ange Suris. Um, give me a follow. Shoot me a DM. Let me know what you thought about, about the podcast being only about one book um, because I haven't done that before either. Or about me being a hater on modern books. If you want to get in a fight, that's okay. Let's let's talk about it because I know that I'm not I'm in the minority here, um, and that's all right. But in the meantime, unfortunately, I have to say this again: with COVID, stay safe out there, everyone. Mask up if you can and are able and are willing. Get vaccinated. <laughs> Treat each other with kindness and respect. And of course, as always, read your heart out.